This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This is the second episode from the special Times Plus event, Brexit Tamed Live, here at the Emmanuel Centre in London. In this episode, a special panel of Times and Sunday Times columnists asks, how did we get here? How did Brexit happen? And where does it sit in world history? Philip Collins, the Times columnist, chairs the panel and is joined by David Ivanovich, Sarah Baxter, Daniel Finkelstein and Ian Martin. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Uh, I'm Phil Collins. I'm reminded that the last time I played this auditorium, I was selling a book on speeches, and my co-stars that evening were Jeremy Irons, Simon Russell Beale, and Carey Mulligan. Well, tonight, <laughs> playing the role of David Aronovich, I have David Aronovich, I have Sarah Baxter, I have Ian Martin, and I have Danny Finkelstein. And it's our job, in the 20 minutes we have available, to talk about how we got here. How did we arrive at this sunlit opportunity slash total shit show? Uh, <laughs> what is the historical moment that brought us here? And it's often said that the referendum campaign was lost uh, by the Remain side with a poor set of arguments. But actually, it's very difficult to win a campaign in a few weeks when you've had 40 years and more of argument before that. And Danny, I want, I want to start with you because in most of your political lifetime, the question of Europe has been a, a wound in the Conservative Party, hasn't it? Your political lifetime in the Tory party has really been dominated by this issue. Completely, and although I think um, that David Cameron, for example, did see that it was possible that he would lose the referendum. Uh, he also thought that Euroscepticism wouldn't naturally lend itself to leaving the European Union. And so I don't think that anybody who was engaged in any of the arguments about Europe in the Conservative Party thought that at the end of that it would end with lots of Eurosceptics concluding we should leave the European Union. When Tony Blair used to make that point, uh, lots of us thought it was a rather cheap one, and it wasn't true. And I think had people appreciated that's where it, it would have lead, there probably would have been a different tone if I'm looking back on it. And I think well, there are lots of things that lots of my friends hate about the referendum and, uh, and I disagree with, but I think I would accept the uh, criticism that 
over a period of 10 years, probably before the referendum, people like me who were Eurosceptics didn't spend long enough explaining what was also a very important part of our politics, which is that we were in favour of being in the European Union. Ian, can we just interrogate where this came from within the Conservative Party and some of the components of, of Conservative Euroscepticism? Let's, let's go back to sort of the 80s and, and you get the, you know, yep. the Bruce speech and, and beyond. And what, what are the main components of it and, and where does it derive from? Well, essentially, you, I think it's rooted in Margaret Thatcher's experience as the creator of the single market, along with uh, Jacques Delors. And that, is, that, that betrayal, as she sees it, of her idea of a single market. So she sends Arthur Cofield in 1983 to sort out Europe and make it all about trade. And that process, in her mind, you can criticize this, goes wrong after the Single European Act, and from when she pivots in 88, is this sense that it's been used by Delors and uh, other European politicians to be about something more than just markets, that, it's, that it is a, a vehicle for political integration. And from once she has that realization, which Thatcher writes are never really honest about, the sense in which she was outplayed, um, that then plus Maastricht really set, you know, sets that running. And the Conservative it, Party then has yeah. within it a, a real strand of opinion, which then becomes a majority strand of opinion that is anti-European -Euro, uh, um, Union. It's always intrigued me about the, the Conservative Party view of the European Union. For, this is really for both of you, which is that on the one hand, you're skeptics of the capacity of state power as a general rule. And yet somehow this hydra-headed monster of 27 nations has got this immense capacity to create a federal government. It always struck me as highly unlikely that this relatively incompetent organization, the EU, was capable of turning itself into a federal state. And you all seem so frightened of it. It could happen by accident, though, Phil. So I think a critical, really? a critical, a critical moment was the euro uh, and the battle against the euro. And uh, the fact is, if a, if an, uh, a group of states decides that it's going to be integrate with monetary policy. Eventually, it has to integrate with fiscal policy. And if it has to integrate with fiscal policy, it has to integrate politically. And I think that, that the idea that that process... Would, I mean, we still disagree, you and I, about that. I think over the next 70 to 100 years, that is exactly what's happening. And in the referendum, we were making a choice, yeah, but which you also, was a big You also one. think it's a good thing, but you're against it. Right. I, 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 I am against... Uh, I was against that process because I thought it was going too fast. Uh, I, did th I do think over a period of 70 to 100 years it was it's inevitable because I think we're going to have more and more global government. David, let, let's go back a, a little further because this is, a, in, in our recent political lifetime, this has been a, a conservative story, but, but actually it's also a Labour story, isn't it? And, um, you, you know, you go back a bit further and, and the great rift in the Labour Party was also on, on Europe. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I do... I can just about remember the time when the real Eurosceptics were in the Labour Party, but the most passionate pro-Europeans were people like Tony Blair. And it really is unfortunate for the Remain camp that at the very moment that the Labour Party had decided to reject Tony Blair and all his works and unbelievably drift towards Jeremy Corbyn, um, at the time of the referendum, that you get this very ambivalent Labour Party that wasn't prepared to campaign for Remain and revive the old splits that had been there in the Benite early 80s. And uh, I think that helped to doom the campaign. I mean, I would mainly say it was the Conservatives' lukewarm approach to Europe where they let themselves be hijacked 
by the Brexiteers into pretending that the EU was a wholly bad thing, um, only to find that the country then voted that well, way, when they didn't really mean it. Um, that was the worst mistake. But the other thing was to let Jeremy Corbyn come as, um, you know, come out of the fringe and into the mainstream. Well, this is one of the great, amazing things about the European Union, which is it manages to persuade the left that it's basically a capitalist conspiracy, whilst also persuading the right that it's a socialist conspiracy. And somebody has to be wrong. And it, I mean, it was always the, one of the ways in which you signaled your virtue as a new Labour person was to be pro-European within the Labour Party. It became a kind of token of a different kind of politics to the Labour Party. It was very rarely deeper than just it seems like a more modern thing. But there was a very strong sense that, that Europe, that a change in Europe, from the, the sort of the Jenkins view of Europe, was the, was the modern thing. But this goes, let's go even further back, David, into the, into the prehistory of the <clears throat> Labour Party. Um, the prehistory of everybody, because I, I think that at the bottom of this is an incredibly deep-rooted cultural contempt for Europe amongst the British upper classes and the British people which goes right the way back to the Schumann plan of 1951 when the, uh, all then incredibly upper, middle, upper class civil servants were incredibly contemptuous about what the Europeans were created, uh, recommended very strongly to the government of Attlee that we shouldn't go anywhere near it. Um, then you have Labour Party. Gates School famously said in 1962 that joining the European Union, the EEC at that time, would mean the end of a thousand years of history. That's what he said, dating it back actually to the time when King Knut ruled England um, uh, and quite, quite taking in what Scotland and Wales were doing at the time, at the time either. But nevertheless, and this, looking and, yeah. over towards the Commonwealth and saying this yeah. will also mean a betrayal of our friends and allies in, in the Commonwealth. So that was the notion of the Commonwealth as a kind of yes. progressive residue of empire was important on the left. And then, as you say, there was the kind of view that this was uh, amongst the hard left that this was a bulwark against the Soviet Union mm. and Comic-Con, etc. It was a division of Europe, essentially that the, um, that the European com uh, com uh, community was a form of Cold War by proxy. I'm really struck by, in, in all of the, the big Europe speeches over the years, starting with, with Churchill in Zurich in '46, going all the way through to Lan May's Lancaster House speech, you've got this great continuity. The Commonwealth recurs over and over and over, and so does the idea of a federal Europe. But Ian, I want to pick something David raised there, which is about the, the question of, our, of our, our experience of the European Union in, the, in this country, which is different from that of the European nations, because we had a different war experience. And I was very struck in the referendum campaign how Perhaps for the first time in a major campaign in British politics, the war didn't work as a reference point. It was no use to the Remain campaign to cite the European Union's part in maintaining peace on, in the European mainland for a long time. David Cameron tried, and he was mocked outrageously for, for suggesting we're going to have a Third World War. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, in those terms, there are, I would, I would question that assertion in terms of how Leave handled it, because there were two Leave campaigns. The other Leave campaign, the unofficial Labour, uh, unofficial Leave campaign, certainly did invoke some of that in its in its rhetoric, the sort of bulldog spirit. The official campaign didn't. I mean, where I disagree slightly slightly with David on that. I mean, there is, of course, because of our island status and and um, uh, a different experience, not superior, just different history. 
Of course, that's a feature of, of British public life. But I think it's one of the one of the extraordinary things about the referendum campaign is actually a lot of the people campaigning to leave, a lot of the key figures in vote leave, I don't mean the public figures, but activists behind the scenes, would really balk, as I would, at the idea of being anti-European, you know, invested in European culture, as fond of Germany and France and Italy, as, as um, um, even sometimes of you know, parts of the UK. But... Uh, so, it, it was not, so it was not really a, a strong, um, you know, a strong feature for that reason. But it is clearly it's a strand of opinion to the to the. This is a very, a very important extreme. part of the of the conservative Euroscepticism is actually belongs to the free market right of the Conservative Party. This is one of the ironies. It's actually a rather uncomfortable relationship that exists between a sort of small head that is very free market with a large number of voters who were really voting against that. Uh, and uh, that produced a, a, an alliance and I think will be very difficult for the Conservative Party to manage. So I think they're going to end up fighting with the policies that are, desire, you know, that are sort of ultra-free markets in Britain to Singapore and trying to sell that in Sunderland. And I think it's going to be very difficult to do. Uh, and so I, I think it's always been this rather uneasy um, relationship in the Conservative Party and... Um, then, of course, the UKIP complicated that more. What happened to the argument, which I used to hear all the time from Conservative politicians, which is, we never signed up for a political union, but we really like the common market. Can't we go back to the old days when it was just called the common market? Now, these days, you've got Conservative politicians desperate to just junk the whole lot. Well, that's because referendums and what follows afterwards are radicalising experiences. So the, the irony is that people who would have five years ago even people like Farage um, at various points who would have accepted Norway plus, 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 a sort of Nick Bowles version of the future, now somehow pre present that as betrayal. Uh, and they've been are, claiming and are, betrayal just, for a long time now. But then actually, as soon as they won the referendum, but that's they said, where, they were, that's you know, where, beware of betrayal. But that's where, the, that's where the Brexiteers are, and I think it's a fair criticism that the Brexiteers are like the... You know the, the dog that caught the, the car, and in terms of not knowing quite what to do, having having won by accident, and I think that is an underappreciated uh, feature of the Eurosceptic um, movement is that they are, you know, they, they they won by a series of bizarre accidents of um, the eurozone crisis, the migration crisis, an issue. I voted to leave the European Union but never really expected to have that opportunity. It was a very low salience issue it is, for decades. It is, as George Dangerfield said of the 1906 Liberal government, it's a victory from which you will never recover. Yeah, psychologically, they've always behaved as if they've lost. And in fact, they've gone out of their way to make sure they did lose the argument. I mean, they could have had Boris Johnson as a, as a, as a lever as prime minister, but they... Uh, you know, couldn't agree on him as the choice, so Michael Gove, you know, leapt up and, and dispatched him with a, a knife. At one stage, the ERG tried to find a, a deal that they could all agree on and put forward, and they couldn't, so they've come to the idea of no deal, which is the only thing they can coalesce around, and they look now like they're going to sort of give the whole game to the soft Brexiteers or Dave, even Remainers. David, can I, can I ask you, I mean, who knows whether we'll have to go through this whole Fandango again in a, in a second referendum, but, but if, we, uh, if we were, we'd, we'd be reminded that the first time we did it, the, the Remain campaign, a very dry and arithmetical 
argument in its campaign, whereas the Leave side had a rather emotional argument. And, and no politician that I can think of has really made a full-throated case for the European Union in any of the all the period we've, we've been thinking about. Well, I first did it actually in 1975 when I voted as a young communist, I voted to come out and then went straight down to the court into, the, into Manchester City Centre to demonstrate against Enoch Powell, who was arguing on my side. Um, <laughs> Such are the kind of strange, <laughs> such a such are the strange alliances. Um, my instinct is that if there were a second referendum, it would be a very different kind of a thing. Um, one of the uh, one of the things that people tend to believe is that a vote is the finish of something, and as we've been discussing quite a lot between us. Sometimes an event is the beginning of something that you didn't even know was possible. So an awful lot of people discovered something they thought very strongly the day after the referendum. A lot of people, I suspect quite a lot of people here, who didn't really think about it very much, it wasn't very important, and they weren't going to get into an argument in favour of Europe. Funnily enough, every time somebody says, I'm in favour of Europe and flies a European flag, other people say, oh, you shouldn't do that, you should fly the Union Jag. It's not patriotic and you need to convince patriotic Britons that you've got to do it. So you're always in a difficulty making the argument uh, for Europe. And the other thing is, that this very long-term contempt I talked about for Europe is really deep-seated, particularly amongst older Britons. Um, it, really, it, it really is. You, find, you, find, you kind of find it everywhere. It's not a sort of racism or anything like that. It's just a thing that they don't amount to much. They, they can be good at Goethe and Schiller and so far, you know, and they produce some good football teams. But politically, they're a shower. They're either Germans who invade things or the French who run away. I think we're doing our best to, yeah. well, we're doing um, our best to I, keep up. And I, think, and, and I was just going to finish <laughs> off by saying, I, yeah. think, I think that perception is altering amongst an important section of British right. people. Yeah, but I think if the, I think if the Remain campaign had not run a negative campaign, it would have come third, right? So I, 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 think, um, I think that was... I think the idea that, you know, the only thing that was missing was to play Beethoven um, and to talk about Goethe and Schiller, that's totally mistaken. Um, it, it was... It, it, the, the problem was the failure to land the economic fear argument. People didn't believe it. Uh, and, um, and actually, I think one of the problems in a second referendum, if there was one, is that because there hasn't been a recession, people wouldn't believe that either. So I think it would struggle a second time. Mm. But, it, but, it, but I think that the... the the assumption is just because Remain ran a particular campaign and didn't win, that was the wrong campaign to run. It wasn't the wrong campaign to run, and it nearly worked. You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics podcast. Coming up after the break, the panel discuss whether demographic change means that Britain is becoming more Remain. We'll be back after this short break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. In, in the last few minutes, can, I, can we just um, have a, assess what we think is the historical significance of the moment that we're in? There's two, two parts to this I want to invite you to comment on briefly. The first is that it strikes me that in every, pretty much every general election since the Second World War, Europe has not featured as a big deal for the public, and yet it has completely rent apart the political class, first the Labour Party and then the Conservative Party. Why is that? Why, why are people around this postcode in London so obsessed with this question? Because everyone here lives in Romania and everyone else lives in Libya, right? And so in other words, we're no, too, we're too big, we're too big, it's no, demographic. They take my basically. view, which is I wish you'd stop talking about it. I suppose I could stop you talking about it right now. But, <laughs> But I've always thought this is a really second-order issue. I just don't understand why people attach Phil, such a sense of identity Phil, to it. Phil, it, the problem is it really isn't a second-order issue. It's a fundamental issue about Britain's strategic, economic and political future and the way in which we operate in the world. I cannot tell you why the Conservative Party moved in the way it did from the days of Macmillan, who begged Charles de Gaulle to let him into Europe to the days when the majority went to, to the days of Jacob Rees-Mogg. I can't explain that uh, uh, fully. I think it's a combination of a set of failures. But one thing above all, we have never taken the time or felt the need to understand what Europe really was, what the European was, how it was, how it was constructed, and what the psychologies and structures of it were. We just never bothered. It's like the way we never bother learning anybody else's bloody language. We just never, we just never did, and so it all Always us on so, the Sarah, do you think we'll look back on this and think this is a moment like 1940 or 1956, which is sort of the calendar of post-war British history? Well, it could definitely be a big fork in the road. How big a fork, we don't know if it's going to be kicked into touch, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the next few days are going to be vital. It could be a big um, historical issue for Britain, but I have to say there are many more important things going on in the world. I mean, I was at 9-11 in New York, and, and that, was, that was 2001, and you definitely got the sense that the new century could be full of foreboding. And uh, it has not turned out to be plain sailing. There's been all sorts of things that have led us to this pass, including the crash, including Germany's decision to um, let in a million Syrian refugees. I mean, there are so many things that sort of stemmed almost, that you can almost trace back to that 9-11 moment and what happened after that, the various wars, etc., that led us here. So I'd say, yes, of course, it's huge for Britain, but whether or not it is sort of of world historical significance, well, probably not. Ian, do you think we'll look back on this as, a, as an incredibly pivotal moment in our history? Uh, we'll look back on it as a, what's the polite word, suboptimal moment in our history. But it, um, I think someone mentioned, I think David mentioned Macmillan. And uh, just reminded me that it was Macmillan who first sent Ted Heath as his emissary in, I think, 59, to begin the talks about talks. So it took from 59 to 73 for Britain to enter, and then another two years until the referendum. So without depressing the audience, we're kind of... We've got another 12 years of this. It's a bit like, it's a bit like, it's a bit like what nationalists say in Scotland about Scottish independence, about it being, and devolution being a process, not just a single event. Uh, I don't think, I think the idea that this can be 
resolved one way, one way or another in the next sort of six months or a year is is um, is, is wrong, and this is going to be something we're dealing with for the next decade. Any last I, I now think you? we're I now think we're going to botch leaving that we may not leave at all, uh, and that if we either do either of those things uh, in 20 years' time, we'll be in the European Union. Okay, with that thought, cheery or otherwise, depending on our point of view, I'm gonna, I've, got, I've got time for three questions, I've been very uh, sternly told by the impresarios of this evening, and uh, the, the people holding the microphones have chosen these, so I have no agency, so don't blame me if you're not chosen. Uh, I can't see anybody, um, so if there is somebody, is, was that someone waving? Whoever's got a microphone, just speak. But if you could just keep it really short and pithy and, and a question rather than a statement, please. Uh, and ideally, if it were directed to one member of the panel, that would be great. If not, I may do that. Thank you, sir. I leave it to you who you direct it to. Isn't the great lie that the Schumann plan was always economic union first and then political union, and that all the political parties including the one which I voted for in 1975 to join the European Economic Community, has lied to us consistently about it and has not taken the record from history which America shows, which is that any state of the 13 original colonies which devolve power to a federal government end up being subservient to it. I voted leave. David, it was a fraud from the beginning. I'm not quite sure which part of that I'm supposed to respond to. Um, um, can, I just say, can I just say that as a, as a former Marxist um, at Reformed, I have learned to distrust iron laws of history such as the one you've just adumbrated. Ian, do you, are you... But I, think, I, I think the point is very effective because, and I'll cite here a brilliant book by Hugo Young called This Blessed Plot, which I recommend, which is written in an approving fashion about what the FCO and other government departments did. I think at the root of it, the original sin is that both of the main parties in this country were not honest about what the project involved. And at the first opportunity when people had a chance, well, they voted by a majority to leave. Let's take another question. Right, right at the back there. Um, does anyone on the panel understand how or why the issue around Northern Ireland just didn't come to the fore in the run-up to the referendum? You can tell by my accent that it was in the forefront of my mind. And we banged on the table about the issues around this. And I still to this day don't understand how it wasn't considered properly and fully thought out. Danny. Well, not that many people live there, right? So, uh, and, and, and the, reason, the reason I put it as frankly as that... Uh, is obviously I care about it very deeply, but I'm very involved in, and I think it, our responsibility is huge. Uh, it's a, a central issue for me. But people don't follow politics very carefully, uh, and therefore some a detail about a border in a place where they don't live. Um, it was raised. I mean, Tony Blair and John Major went to the border. Uh, Theresa May, actually, ironically enough, made a speech on that subject. Um, uh, it, did, it was raised, in, but people don't follow policy detail like that. So lots of people, they don't you know, know who the Chancellor of the Exchequer is, for example. And I'll add uh, Leave didn't expect to win, so whenever anyone raised that issue, they just brushed it aside and said, no bother, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. I remember talking to Jonathan Powell, who was you know, instrumental in the peace process, and right from the start he said this will never happen because of Northern Ireland. He says it can't be done. 
And that, that's a pretty good judgment to early on, but I must have, I didn't tell anyone, so I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> last question. Wherever, yes. Um, so you guys have spoken a lot about um, conservative infighting and what their views on Europe is. And Daniel, you mentioned um, like you'd have a hard time convincing voters in Sunderland. So what do you think you'd have to say to those, kind, like, to those voters to vote Remain? To vote Remain? Yeah. Well, I'm not... The, the, the key thing to understand is um, that people don't necessarily think it's in their interest. They think it's in yours. Uh, and uh, therefore, there's often a dialogue of the deaf, people living in a completely different area. I think people will have to experience uh, that it isn't economically uh, to their benefit. People will not easily change their minds. People haven't changed their minds in this audience. They haven't changed their minds in the country. People dig into their view, and you shouldn't expect... And one wouldn't necessarily expect them to change their mind. Um, if you can make the economic fear argument stick, that still remains the strongest uh, way of winning anything because people are loss-averse. That's why politicians run negative election campaigns and they're still the most effective, even though they're not the most edifying. Um, I, and I think that um, if you can persuade people that it is dangerous to them and that the path forward is uh, unclear uh, and that economically they could be damaged immediately, uh, that still remains the strongest card, but it may not work. Okay, David, the last word. Yeah. It's quite possible that some of you who said you voted Remain earlier today actually voted for Leave, and you're suggesting that you voted the opposite way. The British Social Attitudes survey, which was published this week, showed significantly fewer people admitting to having voted Leave than must have voted Leave. Um, and, this is, and this is usually regarded as one of the indicators of how votes might change. The other thing I'd point you to is the massive generational gap there was, both at the general election and at the referendum, which hasn't changed. And to Peter Kellner's calculation, which is bad for all those over 60, but nevertheless is actuarially true, which is that people over 60 have a greater tendency to be dead at the next election than people of 20. Um, and it's quite possible that purely demographically, the Leave majority has died. Right. On that cheer... <laughs> <laughs> On that cheery note, I'd just like to remind you that if Ian's right, we're two years into a 14-year process, so we'll, we'll see you again next year. But please join me in thanking my panellists, Danny Finkelstein, Ian Martin, Sarah and David. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Red Box Podcast. In the next episode, we'll look ahead to ask where we are going and what we've been talking about if Brexit hadn't happened. I'll be joined by Lucy Fisher, Hugo Rifkin, Satnam Sangera and Katie Perry. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, Spotify or wherever you get your episodes from so you don't miss that episode. For now, I've been Matt Jolly. Goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.